Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, guest host Pamela Sheldon interviews Pam Munter, author of Fading Fame, Women of a Certain Age in Hollywood. Their conversation explores Pam's book and its themes of the systemic misogyny that has dominated Hollywood throughout its history. They also address how women on the screen, victimized in a variety of ways from predatory men on casting couches to the process of aging itself, continue to be victimized today and how we as viewers can recognize those patterns and stop the cycle. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Pam. And as I said, we share a few things in common from our names, of course, our first names, to our mutual backgrounds in education and in performance. But you've played so many roles as a clinical psychologist, a disc jockey, a film historian, a performer singer, a teacher professor, a band light leader, and a writer. My goodness, all in one lifetime. Can you tell us, please, a little bit how the various stages of your life enabled you to create this book? Sure. Basically, I've always been a writer in all of the incarnations you mentioned. There's been some writing involved, and I have tackled it with glee. But basically, I've been a nonfiction writer. I don't read fiction. I hate to admit that since I've written it. And I had never written fiction until this book. And my my hope is that the book will engender empathy for what have, these women have gone through and talk about, well, it's almost an intersectional issue, not just sexism, but ageism in our culture. Now, how I happened to write the book, that's a whole story in itself. I was in an MFA program, Master of Fine Arts, and I signed up as a nonfiction writer because that's what I do. And the head of the program said, hmm, no, you have to have a minor. So I had to choose between screenwriting, which was out. I mean, I'm, I think you have to write for the 14-year-old mind to, to write movies these days, and that's not me at all. Uh, poetry? Hmm, no, I don't think so. Or fiction. So I said, okay, you know, I even thought about dropping out because I, it's so foreign to my nature. But then it occurred to me, I could use all the background I have in Hollywood history, which started from my buying my first book on the silent screen era when I was eight, up to that present time. I thought, you know, I could just, is it cheating you know, to use all this history and put it in a dramatic form? Geez, I hope not. But I got away with it. And Fading fame happened over time. What you've told us, or what leads me to the question of what you think this format gave you in terms of the ability to tell these ladies' stories, as opposed to that of a clinical psychologist who might have put together facts and fiction, facts that were out there, and your expertise as a psychologist. What did the historical fiction afford you? as a person able to tell their stories? Oh, that's a great question. 
I felt like for the women who are identified in the book, and not all of them are identified, I knew their stories. I knew what happened to them in reality, which made it easier for me to bend it into fiction. And as having been a shrink for so many years, I had the capacity, I think, to get inside their heads, to imagine what it was like as they went through their various trials and tribulations in their career and how they felt getting there. You know, I don't deal with that a lot, but it's certainly between the lines, as they say. And the after effects of what happens when they're used up by Hollywood standards, where they're not wanted anymore, where they're replaced by younger, noble, more willing women. So I, I think my strength as a writer would be that I, I have access to an internal dialogue. Even if it's in my imagination, I can imagine how people conceptualize their experience and process it. That's a wonderful answer. I will turn to the comparison between the plays and the short stories and what the latter offers you as opposed to the short story when we get to it. First, I want to deal with some of the things you say. You're speaking about women who lived at a particular period of time, and you speak about the fact that they couldn't own property in their own name, couldn't adopt a child without a man, their total subservience on men, and you refer to it as institutional discrimination. Yes. What do you mean by that? institutional discrimination? I think society as a whole, fortunately, was different then than I think it is evolving now, where women were clearly second-class citizens. They were in a specific role in society, and that was to, to marry and have children and to satisfy the needs of men. If that isn't institutionalized sexism, I don't know what is. And, of course, women were willing uh, participants because they didn't feel they had options. Women who took those options, who were well-educated or were more daring in their lifestyle, were castigated and, and set aside. They didn't get ahead in our social hierarchy. And yet here's the interesting thing, that you, who were living during that time as well, were able to fulfill so many roles. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Did you have the backup of the men in your life to be able to do that? Sometimes. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote a memoir. This is a good time for me to plug the memoir. Uh, it's called As Alone As I Want to Be. And, I, and it talks about some of the travails of growing up an androgynous female in the 1950s and 60s. Most of the time, people wanted to stand in the way. You know, I was told in all kinds of manner, women don't do that. Uh, my own mother told me, don't get so many college degrees. You know, you'll price yourself out of the market. Ah, <laughs> and that was the worst thing she could imagine happening to me was that I wouldn't get married. Well, of course I did unsuccessfully, but I did. So then there were people now and then. There was somebody when I was teaching at Portland State as the only female faculty member. Oh, man, that was quite a story, too. The, the man who supported me kind of got me through eight years of that. The department chairman kept a Playboy bunny cup on his desk at all times. So I needed the support of an ally in that situation. I agree with you because I've gone through many similar things as have many of the women listeners. However, I think it is still going on, which is the unfortunate thing. And 
perhaps we can learn from some of these ladies' stories what we need to do to not be victimized. That's my hope. Well, it starts early, Pamela. I think a lot of the women in fading fame had nothing but fame in mind all their lives. They, they missed early developmental stages. Very few of them had close women friends. They lacked intrapersonal resources and made them quite dependent on more powerful figures. I would hope that that's changed, that we're more aware now of the need to shore up our own resources. But as you say, it's still happening. But it's interesting. You tell the story in Francis of Francis Marion, the best friend of Mary Pickford, a very good, a very well-established, well-revered Hollywood actress. And uh, you almost said, you suggest from, uh, they knew each other so well, they lit each other's fire aesthetically. You almost, and you also suggest, at least from Beth Francis's point of view, that they could have enjoyed a, a lesbian relationship. They were that close. They honeymooned together. They had dinner parties together, et cetera, et cetera. Also, it, maybe as a film historian, you can tell us not only was she, Mary Pickford, revered as the little girl, the beautiful little girl on the Hollywood screen, but she ran a very successful Hollywood studio at that time as yes. the women in Hollywood. Why did that crumble? It was doing so well. What happened? Well, Mary Pickford is a good case study, I think, of what happened to women during that era. She was born to a, what they used to call a broken family, and her mother ran a boarding house, and Mary and the other kids were sent out to perform to earn money. She said in her autobiography that by eight, she was supporting the family financially. So you can imagine the kind of upbringing and lack of education was involved in that. She came into Hollywood during a time when things were new and they hadn't banned women yet. <laughs> that came later. And she was, as you suggest, she was able to not only establish her own studio and make her own films, but select the, the writers and the directors and her other cast members. And then she and her then husband, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and two others, formed United Artists, which is a major studio then, and in fact, continues today, even though it's, a, it's not a studio anymore, it's a distribution company now. And then uh, she kept playing these parts that Frances Marion wrote for her, by the way, of little girls, as you suggest. And she had you know, this long, uh, curly, blonde look to her, which was really her hair, believe it or not. And she played young girls until she was 40. But, of course, that came to a close when she tried to, when she cut her hair, which shocked Hollywood, and did a soundie, one of the first, and played an adult, people didn't want to see it. Her career started to die. Now, in the meantime, in the mid-20s, the men consolidated their power. MGM came into full flower in the mid-1920s, uh, Paramount. They were all acquisition-oriented. And they started taking back from the women what the women had really founded the early Hollywood years. And Mary Pickford, I think, just kind of walked away. You know, she did win an Academy Award for that one soundie, but some people think it was pity because she had put so much into the industry that they felt they had to give her something on the way out the door. And then her life 
or a felt in disrepair. In the in the book, she is an alcoholic, which is actually true. She was an alcoholic, and that's what eventually prevented, I think, her becoming going back to the cinema. She was one of the founders of the Motion Picture Arts Sciences Academy. So, you know, she, she contributed a lot to the business, but I don't think there was ever much acknowledgement of that. People look back on her silent screen roles more than what she did for the business and for women. So it sounds as if business, when big business came into play, controlled by the men, they kind of pushed her, that kind of, they pushed her to the side, they marginalized her, as they still continue to do in many respects. Yes, it morphed into five major studios in time. Very few of them are alive today. They've changed significantly. But back then, for probably 30 years, five major studios and five men, white men, made all the decisions for what we as a public would see on the screen and who would get parts. And uh, what she became, unfortunately, I think is given to us by Francis's observation that she comes down the stairs to that party, all made up with floor-length, puffy-sleeved, yellow dress, doused with beads and feathers, and she descends, and her face is hollow, and she looks her age, with her eyes a little bit blurry, and a little sunken, perhaps the alcoholism, very much of Norma Desmond in um, Sunset Boulevard, coming down those, that staircase, bound to her keepers, who are going to take her away to an insane asylum. Yes. Uh, and as she says, as Norma says, I'm ready for my close-up. Yeah. You know, there's some rumors that Billy Wilder, who wrote Sunset Boulevard, used Mary Pickford as his template. There has never been any confirmation of that. But certainly a lot of Norma's career actually was a paramount, mirrored Mar- Mary Pickford perfectly, even mm-hmm. the end. Francis survives. At least she tells the story. Irene Selznick. What enabled Irene and Francis to survive the Hollywood mold that had been forced on them, as opposed to Mary and Irene's sister and mother? Well, Francis Marion was hired, uh, left Mary Pickford, I, I would hope on good terms, but I don't know if that's true. She went to work for MGM, which was the huge, mega successful factory in Hollywood for decades. And she worked under Irving Thalberg, who was the boy wonder for years until he died. And they were very kind to Frances Marion. They, and she was an excellent writer. I mean, she is the only woman even today who has won two Academy Awards for best screenplay. You know, that just, that keeps you on the payroll. You know, if you get that kind of thing. Irene Selznick's story is quite different. You know, she, her father was Louis B. Mayer, who was the man who ran MGM. And um, she had a sheltered, childhood, privileged, as you might imagine, living in Bel Air in a big mansion and was forbidden to date actors and people in Hollywood. (laughs) The only reason she escaped was because she married David O. Selznick, who was another one of those lascivious pioneers in Hollywood. She went from the, you know, the frying pan into the fire with leaving Mayer and (laughs) they're both so flawed in every conceivable way. But Selznick had the drug issues, and that's eventually what allowed Irene to leave the marriage. And when she did, she made she's one of those pioneering, daring women who tried something entirely new. She went to New York from Hollywood 
and started producing. And she successfully produced uh, the first production of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, won the Pulitzer Prize for it, and went on to a successful producing career in New York. I mean, unfortunately, many of the other women in Fading Fame didn't have such good outcomes. But she certainly was an admirable risk taker. So it seems to me some of the positive messages that emerge here and what makes the play so much more positive or perhaps offers us more hope is the fact that these women, Francis and Irene, were able to cultivate an inner life as opposed to the other women who really had nothing except the reliance on men or the Hollywood mold. And as they aged, that petered out. Yes. Um, as you pointed out, there's a tremendous irony in the fact that Irene ran from her family, ran from her father because he was so controlling and it ran into a man who was equally controlling. Yeah, that was all she knew. You know, she was looking to get out and yes. out she got. Why is she so critical of her mother, Pam? Well, of course, this is fiction, right? What kind of a woman stays married to someone like Louis B. Mayer, who not only controls every minute of every day, but has these wild affairs on the side and beds every starlet in Hollywood? I mean, who puts up with that? It has to be a woman who is low, has low self-esteem, is very dependent on him for everything, and has bought into that. So as Irene became more independent... I think she sympathized with her mother, but moved on beyond it and didn't want to become like her. Or her sister. Um, <laughs> sister Edith. Beyond which, at which you tell us who they were and what has happened. They allow him to say at one point that he kept them well-fed, well-healed monetarily, and he compares them almost to a stable of horses at a certain point in the short story. Awful. I was always thinking of you girls. You were my only concern. I treated you with no less care than I would of my, my stable of shiny stars. So the women in his life were comparable to the stars who he used sexually. And by the way, I'm very curious. You bring in the story of Charlie Chaplin. And yet, why do you do that in terms of this story? What is the similarity between Chaplin and... Well, Chaplin, actually, I don't know that Chaplin and Mayer had any interaction. I brought it in because I wanted to show who Louis B. Mayer was. And no better way to do that than to bring in Chaplin, who was a notorious raper of young girls. I mean, he, <laughs> he went to court even on that. I mean, he was a terrible person in that sense, talented, but terrible. And one of the ways to do that was for Irene to challenge her father about the night that Chaplin was there with a very young teenage girl. And you hear the mother saying, you know, oh, it was nothing. I don't remember anything about it. It was a very pleasant evening. It seems to show us not only who Louis B. Mayer was, but who the wife was, too, to have turned a blind eye to that. Yeah. And, and she does accuse her mother of that at fictional end when she says, I suppose you did the best you could. But then she turns on her and says, how could you have stayed married to him knowing what you knew about him? And um, it's so unlike her sister, Edie, who is content to fit into the Hollywood mold as a hostess, etc., etc. 
and she, you, the end of the story finds her fleeing from that house of control, so eager to return to New York, where the, where the weather was the only thing that chilled her. It's so terrible, the, the hypocrisy, the, the sexism, the deception, the double standards, the patriarchy that plays into the lives of these ladies. And of course, one of my favorite people while I was growing up was Doris Day. That's yeah. Me too. Yes, but we all, I don't know, as a singer, I loved to listen to her. I mm. always thought that she was devalued as an actress. And I think of Midnight Lace and I think of one of her earliest films, Julie. And there's such an irony in the role she played in Julie. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yes. It was uh, one of the movies that her husband produced. <laughs> Marty, let me back up a little and explain who Marty Melcher was. Marty Melcher was Doris Day's third husband. He came un- into her life as her agent, actually, and thereby taking over her entire show business life. He decided what movies she made. He decided what records she made. And looking back on it, there was some pretty bad choices in there. Rickety, rackety, rendezvous, really. <laughs> and this was one of the movies that she made with Louis Jordan. And it's a very dramatic, sort of like Midnight Night Lace. They're in, in peril and somehow they get out of it all right. Julie was interesting because they shot it on location in Carmel. And she fell in love with the area and later moved up there from Beverly Hills and stayed, I think, just 20 years or something. She lived there. But there's a pretty much of an irony there because Doris was beaten by her first husband, was she not? Yes, Al Jordan, yes. And in um, Julie, she is running away from someone who abuses her as well. That's why it's a, it's a little bit out of character. The Rex Harrison film, yes. He is attempting to abuse her in the form of, in a pretty horrible way as well. But I think yeah. there's an irony in, in that role that she's playing since she played somewhat of the same role in her personal life. And yet she kept on going back to these controlling, brutalizing men. Yes. And Melcher got her these second rate scripts, did he not? Because they were cheaper. Yes, and they would take him on as a, a producer and give him a cut. Tell us, as a clinical psychologist, maybe from that point of view, why in her later life, as she was still trying so desperately to hang on to the image of the beautiful, sunny character roles that she played on screen, why did she surround herself with animals? Well, she always loved animals. Uh, The story goes that when she was a young girl in Cincinnati, uh, she did something, I've forgotten what now, that caused a dog of hers to die and that she always felt bad about that and began to, one of the reasons she left Beverly Hills, by the way, because she had more dogs and cats there than were legal. And so they built the house in Carmel so that she could have as many as she wants. Doris was like some of the others we've talked about. She had no childhood, you know, at a very young age, she was uh, put into dancing school and had sort of a semi-professional career with a young boy until the two of them were injured in a train crash, which damaged her leg to the point where she was in a cast for a little over a year and ended her dancing career. So mom said, well, how about singing? (laughs) And it turned out that was a really good choice because she was an excellent singer, but she didn't go to school much. She didn't have friends. 
even in her later years, there are stories about some of her co-stars who were once uh, close with her. She would not let into the compound because she didn't want to see anybody. Again, at the end, her life was run by the executive director of the foundation, a man who controlled everything. She wasn't even allowed to see her grandson. It's a sad thing. But I'd like to think that she was happy having all those animals around. They gave her comfort. They didn't screw her over like all the other people in her life. So all loving and all giving as, and generous as opposed yeah. to the men who had done her in throughout her life. That's and right. And in terms of her son as well, is there not in that she, at the end, she, she's fleeing from the lawyer Melcher relationship and she turns herself over to her son who has also been was a victim of the beatings of yeah. the father but but Doris but what is the irony of Doris turning herself over to Terry actually that happened Terry did step in to take over you know Terry was uh, sort of a loose cannon he ran into the police now and again in Beverly Hills when he was growing up, you know, minor things, stealing hubcaps, and if you, if you remember hubcaps, <laughs> and things like that. It was nothing awful. Then he got into drugs, and it was right about the time that Melcher died. And I think she continued to look to Terry to shore her up, thinking it would be good for him, not realizing that she was serving her own needs, too. She does. You have her acknowledging that. She can't live without men yes. and, and doing things for her. So she continues to turn herself over to these men who continue to victimize her. Yes. And at the end, you say um, she, she will not trust men again, but maybe Barry, maybe him. He's such a kind man. So the irony of she can't escape the perpetual uh, role of victim of dominant men, even though she knows better instinctively. Yeah. Well, again, the lack of internal resources. And she did marry Barry, by the way. Barry was a, a maitre d' at a restaurant she frequented in Hollywood. And he knew how to play her. He would bring her dog bones to take home. And she was just in love from day one. And they married. Um, not for long. I think they were married about four years. He wanted to use her name to manufacture dog food. And that didn't go very well. I don't remember all the business end, but she was so used to turning over her life to a man that she almost went under again financially because of that marriage. And um, she doesn't really ever want to give up the Hollywood mold. She works so hard to cultivate it from the bicycle riding to the massages, to the hair appointments, et cetera, et cetera. She continues to play that role and doesn't want to give it up as does the character in the next story you deal with, The Curtain Never Falls. And another aging lady who's unwilling to accept her age and live gracefully with who she is or who she might be. That's a, a very poignant story for me to write. You know, that was inspired by a real person. It's, it's not about a real person, but I had watched a documentary about Rosemarie. She was a cabaret singer, nightclub performer, best known as playing Sally Rogers on the Dick Van Dyke show in the 60s, very well known at the time. And she was in her last days during this documentary. And she was in a wheelchair and she'd obviously had, had, had many too many plastic surgeries. She didn't look good at all. And she said to the interviewer, you know, some nights 
I lie in bed going over my act. And I whipped out a piece of paper and a pencil and wrote that line down in the middle of the theater because, wow, there's a story just in that line. And that's what I took to create the, the story about the curtain never falls. It never falls for some people. They never give up. Well, once again, we're, we're dealing with no other life but the life of showbiz. They morph into age. They don't know what to do. They don't know who they are. They haven't discovered anything authentic about themselves. And okay. she finds herself reimagining after having rescued a fellow companion in that nursing home or wherever she is. Maybe there's a story here. I'll find someone to play the other lady and um, I'm going to call my agent. They can't give up, even though they're in their 80s, approaching their 90s, because they have no other thing to fall back on. I'm interested in the next story. Maybe there is a piece of that in Madeline Mosley. You give it a very suggestive name, Madeline Mosley. What did you mean by that? Well, Madeline, uh, which who is a fictional character, there she's pieces of other singers that I knew when I was performing in cabaret. You know, people who shouldn't be doing this anymore, but are mostly implies that she is the sum total of her lyrics, her song lyrics. She becomes the song she's singing. Her life is performing. There is no Madeline. There's no there there. If you want to put it that way. There is just Madeline, the singer, Madeline, the performer, the Madeline, the people pleaser. So I was hoping to impart that with the title. Uh, So that the lyrics flesh out whatever she should have been. But in recent years, the lyrics had become something more. Neurological inroads, ways to relate to herself, and not always in a good way. It's the lyric of one particularly sad. And it becomes increasingly, as you point out, exhausting to keep up the image of who these people were as they age. And, of course, they have no inner life, so they have nothing else that they can count on or or rely on. Yes, their inner life is uh, memories of what they once were or did. She was 82. Madeline is 82. Not really ready to retire. Ready to think about it because what else are they going to retire to or retreat to? They have nothing else. And in Jerry's interview, she does say that I wanted something else. I wanted to be a reporter, but my mother, mom, mm-hmm. And then there is that particularly sad story about another singer that, who I adored, who few people know the name of, Susanna McCorkle. And I think your title says it all of the themes we've been talking about. Everything that mattered. The everything for Susanna was what, of course? Fame. I mean, she had lost her recording contract. She'd lost her deal to perform at the Oak Room at the Algonquin Hotel that she had headline for years. Um, and there were, the marriages were out the door. There were no men interested. And there was nothing much left for her. You know, some of this story is true, sad to say. I knew Susanna, not well, but I, I had met her a couple of times. In fact, I, just as a sidebar, listening to her in New York for the first time was why I went into cabaret. Because I listened to her and the way she presented herself and realize you don't have to be Ethel Merman or a top-notch singer to be successful in cabaret. I thought, great, great, I stand a chance. And I started communicating with her. I was trying to get her to Portland, Oregon to do a series there, and that just never happened. But I got a gig at the Algonquin, the Oak Room, a year or two later. 
And I emailed her. I said, you know, here it is. Can you come? I would just love it if you'd be there. She said, well, I'll, you know, I'll try. I'll try. I'll try. And that month, she died. So was, I was walking down the street in, in New York City, going to a rehearsal, and my PR guy called me and said, I guess you haven't heard Susanna McCorkle is dead. And I just stopped cold. Was, three people ran into me, you know, because I just stopped cold in the middle. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I knew the issues, but I didn't think they were, they were that bad. So what does somebody think about when they're planning to jump out of a hotel or an apartment window? That's what the story is about. But she was all used up. Everything that mattered was going or fading. The gigs, her voice, and she didn't take, uh, we should say to our audience that she suffered from a depressive order. She was bipolar, but she wouldn't treat herself because she was afraid of it affecting her voice. Yes. So she chose that life, the out over the life, the inner life or the, the will to live. She was all used up. I pulled out one of her discs that I had collected because I loved listening to her. Mm-hmm. her the, the songs that she chose were not well known. They were so wonderful and so different, but they, they spoke of her depression. Yes. Yes, they did. I still listen to her CDs. It, it makes me sad, but I appreciate the artistry. She was not a, a excellent singer, but she was an excellent interpreter of lyrics, which is what you look for in a cabaret performer anyway. Little her ability to get under the lyric, turn the phrases and tell the story. And they were not happy stories. Her, you saw her as she performed you. If you wanted, you began to understand her a little bit. No eye contact when she performed. She uh, would stand, the, the layout for the Oak Room is it's sort of long and narrow. And the singer is on a slightly elevated stage in the middle of against one wall. And she would perform almost her entire show to the back of the wall in front of her. It was very difficult to catch her. Even when people were you know applauding frantically, she'd still be looking around as though she's wondering where the people are. And that told me a lot about her and her personal skills. Made me sad, too, because it's like she, she missed it. She missed the adulation. She missed the connection with people, with the um, performance, that she missed what could have mattered more or what should have mattered more, the connection with people. And she, too, was losing it at the end because of the ageism. And now right. we to an adored actress, Ethel Barrymore, who I used to adore, who I thought could do no wrong. And she always played first violin, never played second violin, even when she was growing up within her well-heeled family, Lionel, Jack, who was an alcoholic, and Lionel, who was after Kill Dare. I remember him from those roles. Yes, great actor. Yes, wonderful. But Ethel was the key, that she would never play second role to her brothers. And, but now the question is, as she's aging, can she accept what she is at this point? She turned 75. I don't think, I like, can't think of 75 as old. No, you think of 75 as old for very personal reasons. But here we have her in this story, 75, being asked to play second fiddle to Frank Sinatra. And can she do it? And we have her struggling with that. It was 1954, and she would soon be 70, oh, soon be 75 years old. She was struggling. 
ageism. And um, he reminds us of what it's taking these, these actresses to keep up the image. She had always the capacity to detach herself from everyone and everything around her and to play that role. And yes. now she couldn't do it any longer because she was forgetting her lines, because she was looking in the mirror and seeing who and what she had become. Unfamiliar with professional frailty, she has to accept it for the first time in her life. Would anyone see her struggle? The stamina wasn't there anymore. Mighty engine was running out of steam. Oh, you tell it so beautifully, so metaphorically. She didn't belong in this business anymore. And you say something very telling at one point, that in retrospect, marriage and motherhood were very much like stage credits, giving her persona greater resonance. She realized she had been badly cast in both roles. What yeah. do you think? Tell us what happened to her as a wife and a mother. Uh, she married, uh, by the way, at the time she married, uh, Winston Churchill had wanted to marry her. And <laughs> she turned him down. You know, one, it's sort of what if moment, road not taken, <laughs> but very interesting in Churchill's life. She married this man because she was pregnant. That's what you did then. And uh, the marriage was pretty much a sham, I think. They had very little relationship. She uh, had two children with him. Uh, she hired her son, sort of like Doris used Terry, to take care of her, take care of her affairs. And her relationships were transactional, as we say these days. I have her close friends that she would characterize them. I mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt in the story because she and Eleanor were social friends. What did they talk about? I would love to know that. I don't know who else was in her life, but it was all... Credits. It was all transactional. Well, maybe Eleanor and she compared notes on their terrible marriages. Yeah. Telling husbands or how controlling they were, because Franklin was certainly controlling. These women are all attached to controlling men. Yes. And even, oh, I, I forget who it is that can't even go to dinner without having to check in. Oh, it's Doris who says at one point, She's happy for her freedom these days now that Melcher has died because she doesn't have to call him. There's coercive control going on there every moment. Yes. And she can't enjoy any time away. The men are constantly, you know, controlling or abusing. Well, that was pro quo back then. You know, if you wanted to move ahead in any field, particularly in show business, you had to give something up. And it turns out, as we see, you give a lot up. And it's very hard to reclaim that because it becomes a part of who you are now. You don't feel that you can do it on your own anymore. So when the first controlling man disappears, for whatever reason, you find another one because you know how to behave there. You know how to behave in that world, especially when you haven't any other world to turn to. No exactly. authentic life. But unfortunately, I... I think it's still going on. And as you say, these women are our sisters. They're trying their best to do their darndest in a world when the time relegated them only to the role of mother or wife. Sometimes, if you were lucky, teacher. Yeah, or nurse. <laughs> or nurse. Or librarian. Yeah, that's right, yes. Those were the roles, and those were the only roles. Mm -hmm. Always, in my mind, has much changed in these days. You suggest that things have changed. Well, certainly women can band together and point out 
as in the case of the Me Too movement. It happened to Me Too. But one wonders if it won't ever stop. Where is the stop? That's a good question, Pamela. I, I don't, don't think it will ever stop, but we can stop making it acceptable. And I think we are working toward that end. The papers are full every day of men who have been caught, you know, being jerks and being sexist pigs or, or worse. That's amazing. Our own governor, who is having his come up, up in Cuomo. And isn't it wonderful that we have now for the first time in New York, at least, a female governor. But um, I'm pulling for her. I hope she can she can do well. Now, the uh, two plays that you write in the book offer a little bit more hope. In what yeah. sense do they offer us a little bit more hope? Yes, that's true. And, and they're dark comedies, so they're a little lighter in both cases, too. They make you laugh rather than cringe. Although cringing is always a part of everything I write. I can't help myself. It's a part of life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did this form offer you that the short story did not offer you? Why did you switch format? Did you find it more plastic? Yeah, that's a good way to put it, sure. And I didn't want to use real people, although in one of them, Janet Drake, Private Eye, it, it was taken from a real story. One, in one of the books I wrote probably 10, 15 years ago called When Teens Were Keen, it was just a book about uh, a group of actors who played the same parts as teenagers, although they were in their 30s, in cheap monogram movies. And the only person remaining from that was Noel Neal, better known now as Lois Lane, the original Lois Lane and Superman. So I got to know Noel a little bit uh, the last 10 or 10 years or so of her life. And here are some of her secrets, <laughs> which I, of course, passed on. I mean, in, in fictionalized form. Multiply married, had ambivalent feelings about going back and acting again. She did now and then. She went to work at United Artists as a secretary for a while, as my protagonist does in the in this story. And it didn't seem to bother her. I always would ask, how don't you miss the fame? And she said, oh, no. But then she'll sign up to do it in the movie. So denial is rampant everywhere, I guess. And um, denial and so much the narcissism, so much the need to see, find a life only in the performance that Carlotta is willing to accept the role of mother. I cannot believe that she, you say she's kind of, you're channeling Norma Desmond through her. That particular play was done uh, here in the Palm Springs area. And the woman who played Carlotta was just wonderfully over the top, which Carlotta is very theatrical and fake and demanding and petulant and <laughs> irritating. And what do the uh, companions to these women share in common? I think with uh, the, the one that was based on Noelle Neal, her friend um, is supporting her in the new life that she has created. He's the one who set up her appointments, her meetings at uh, stage shows, autograph shows, which she enjoys. As for Carlotta, the only men in her life, again, are transactional figures. Bernie, the agent, she's always on him to, to get her a job somewhere, anywhere, because it's been a long time since she's worked. But she's willing to play Janet Drake's mother. And... Um... The companions to, to Carlotta, the, the companion to Robbie, who also needs that stage life in order to feel a life, 
They're so narcissistic. They're so self-involved. They're so involved with the fantasy. What do their companions share in common? I think with, you're talking about Life Without, which was the play about uh, the gay couple <clears throat> who find a neighbor to help her reach her career goals. At least she thinks so. And she's willing to do whatever it takes to have that happen. Robbie's partner, Lori, is uh, somebody who was willing to support her delusions in all of this and loves her dearly and wants her to succeed. She just doesn't want her life thrown into the mess it was when Robbie was trying to make it in New York. And the same is for goes for Stan's companion, too. He is willing to support his narcissism, even though he's portrayed as a very foolish, empty man. Yes. To keep it going. And Robbie has written a play about him, as a matter of fact. And the irony is he's portrayed as exactly who he is, an empty, silly person trying to do something that is ridiculous. Everybody's very sure that when he sees the play, he won't recognize himself, which yeah. is true of narcissists. They have no idea how they appear to others. They are. Many of these men here are narcissists. They think only of themselves. And I'm going to ask you, before we end, to address three issues we always ask at the end of our podcast. What's at stake in the struggle to end these, this gender-based violence or oppression, in, your, in this case, ageism? Well, I think it, it has to end for the well-being of society. You just can't throw away an entire group of people uh, just because they're starting to look different from you and they are perceived as worthless. Women, I think when you hit 40, 50, somewhere in there is when you start being called ma'am and box boys ask to carry your groceries out for you. <laughs> you know, that's when you know it's happening. I think that just for the evolution of society, we have to equalize not just the sexism, but the racism and all the other things that plague our society and make us less than human, I think. And uh, what gives you hope? I think women banding together gives me hope. I think that has been a phenomenal development. And it you know, goes back to the women's movement in the 70s, which I was happily a part of. I think women have come to trust each other rather than seeing each other as rivals. And that has helped enormously. I also think that the strength to sue, <laughs> to bring lawsuits against men who are habitual violators has, has given me hope too, because the more public they are, the less they're likely to get away with it. Perhaps the more we recognize as women, the better we can do with our sons. In yes. Establishing these values. What do we need to do more of then to end this suppression but what do you think we can do more of or less of as women to, to help end the oppression? Well, I think tr shining a light on it helps a lot. And certainly social media, the rise of social media has helped this tremendously. I don't think Harvey Weinstein would have been uncovered, really, without the rise of social media, uh, as well as all these other people in, who have been caught short. So the more we talk to each other and the more we reveal awful things sometimes that have happened to us, the more the healing can take place within, but also society is warned. Be careful. And maybe you give a partial answer in the full, and before you even start your forward, you take the lyric from Jules Stein and you say, although it's referring, I think, to men or a relationship, 
but if we see it just as three lines you you gave us, fame, if you win it, comes and goes in a minute. Where's the real stuff in life to cling to? So by, by that, you mean what? The real stuff. The essence of life, uh, love, passion, curiosity, personal growth, uh, reaching out and having constructive, healthy relationships with other people. Those get left behind sometimes when fame is all you want. And the understanding that you should and could have an inner life and you shouldn't or should discover, you should work to discover who you are, perhaps. Find the person who is. That's the first thing to do. You really can't have healthy relationships with other people if you don't know who you are. Well, Pam, it's just been simply a delight speaking with you. And I must urge the audience to get your book. It's wonderful. You you treat a very powerful subject in such a delightful way. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Pamela, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.